Hello podcast listeners and welcome to the 10th of April 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Apologies if you've listened to the first half of this podcast earlier and only heard part of the story. There were some technical difficulties. Well, spring has sprung, ladies and gentlemen, and that means the humidity is rising. As we all get reacquainted with the Hong Kong diet plan of Sweat It Out, this week we'll be listening to a story from Chris, who tells us a story set in an equally humid environment on the other side of the world. We'll also hear from Sebastian, who tells us about how to be a real man. Before we get to today's stories, though, we'd like to extend our ever-present thanks to our hometown listeners in Hong Kong. You keep us going with your continued support. Thanks for listening to our overseas listeners as well, especially this week the listeners in Noida, Siligiri, and Birdwan in India, Zinakantepec in Mexico, and Taranga in New Zealand. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our April show will be live at The Fringe on April 17th. That's next week, and tickets are selling fast. You can get yours through hongkongstories.com. Just follow the links. The theme for this month is transition, and there is a plethora of thrilling stories to pique your interest. Our host this month is Suhas, and he's working hard to help mold the stories into a shape that will please your listening ears. Once again, tickets can be found at hongkongstories.com. This year, Hong Kong Stories is sponsoring the second annual Hong Kong Spoken Word Festival in May. It's set to be an extravaganza of spoken word performances, all taking place at the Fringe Club in Central. We'll have Hong Kong Improv, Comedy HK, Peel Street Poetry with Bill Stories, Liars League, and five of the top podcasters in Hong Kong interviewing their specially selected guests. Hong Kong Stories will be there too with our best and most impactful stories from the past 12 months. Tickets will be on sale shortly from the website at hongkongspokenwordfestival.com or through artmate.net. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. And now from our December 2018 show with a the theme of Happy, told live at the Fringe Club in Hong Kong, here is Chris. Ten years ago, when Zach and I decided to take the leap and move internationally to the Dominican Republic, we suddenly felt the need to get our lives in order. So we made a to-do list. Prepare the house for renters, give away most of our worldly belongings, make a living will, and register as domestic partners. I clearly remember working in the garden when Zach came out and reminded me that we needed to get to the county courthouse. So I threw on a cotton dress and we hopped on our bikes. I wore flowers in my hair and a perfume of sweat and earth. So we moved to the Dominican Republic where we lived for three years and it was a beautiful sunny day and Zach presents me with a Mexican Day of the Dead box. On the box, there is an image of a skeleton man on bended knee before his love, a skeleton woman. As he hands me the box, my heart is racing, and I open the box, and inside lay 
an enormous ring. We are not talking carrots here. We are talking it was the wrong size and fit <laughs> on my thumb. <laughs> so here it was, a too big ring in a box of death. Will you marry me? Of course. For those of you not familiar with the Dominican Republic, it must be noted that subtlety is not a cultural norm. Therefore, available wedding attire is more appropriate for a night out in Lang Kwai Fung than for a simple countryside wedding. So I had just decided to reuse a dress I already had for a formal Christmas party. It was white and flowy silk, simple but elegant. We were going to go to New York for the holidays to visit families, and my sister had asked me to bring the dress so she could see it, which really meant she wanted to approve it. So I go to New York and put on the dress, and my sister looks at me skeptically and says, no. Chris, you cannot wear that dress. It's very flowy and big. You and Zach have been together eight years. Everyone's going to think you're pregnant, which I was not. <laughs> My sister was so insistent, and given the fact that Zach and I had waited so long, I decided to heed the advice and not fuel any rumors. So I folded and decided to buy a new dress. So I'm in New York City for a week. Of course, I can find a dress, no problem. I have in my mind a very clear image of a long, antique lace dress, not white. So my fixation leads me to scour every thrift store in New York City, grungy, high-end, where I find nothing. It's my last day in the city, and I'm sitting on my soon-to-be in-law's couch, and I resign myself to the pregnant look. I turn to Aunt Judy and say, Jude, it doesn't really matter if I look pregnant. It's just a dress. I mean, who really cares? Aunt Judy looks completely distraught and in true Judy, New Yorker fashion, looks at me and says, fuck that. Sorry, Sapphire. <laughs> She's a New Yorker. <laughs> Aunt Judy lives in an apartment on the east side. She's lived in the same apartment for 35 years. And this apartment looks more like a modern art installation titled Classy Hoarder Punk than a place to call home. So I'm sitting in the one small open space on the couch when Judy suddenly jumps up and says, oh my fucking God, wait, wait, I completely forgot. And she dashes out of the room. She comes back holding a large garment box and opens the box and inside lay a long antique lace dress. She tells me that the dress belongs to Zach's great-grandmother, Sadie who family lore holds as the only sane person, other than Zach, in the family. So I take this as a good omen. 
The dress is very dated, has a high collar and really poofy sleeves. But Judy insists I take it back to the Dominican Republic to see if I can find someone to fix it. So I take the dress back to the Dominican Republic. A friend says she has the best seamstress and she'll take me to her. So we're driving there and I realize that we are heading straight into the worst neighborhood of all of Santo Domingo, which is no small feat. As we're driving through the streets, my friend begins circling and I start recognizing things and it becomes very apparent that we're lost. Suddenly, the car stops and I watch as my friend tries over and over again to restart the car, but it's dead. Within seconds, there are cars, motorbikes, carts, and people swarming our car. It is total chaos. People are screaming, yelling, music is blaring. Okay, music was always blaring in the Dominican Republic, but you get the idea. It's complete chaos, and the road is clogged, and we're the cause of all this chaos. I'm watching all this happen, and out of the side mirror, I see a taxi cab door open, and out steps a very large, very angry man, and he's wielding a large machete. Not good. <laughs> so this large, aggressive, belligerent man is heading straight towards us with a large knife. Luckily, en route to chopping us to pieces, he encounters another belligerent taxi driver and they occupy each other nicely whilst a street hustler approaches the car to save the day. In addition to working the streets, he is a whiz mechanic and realizes that my friend has forgotten that cars require a thing called gas. So he's off in a flash and returns with a jar, a jar of gas. <laughs> it's the Dominican Republic. And we're out of there. So the seamstress I'm nearly killing myself to get to lives in a small dusty room whose decor consists of a television blasting Dominican soap operas and mounds of clothes piled around an aging sewing machine. I hand over the dress and she promptly rips off the sleeves and the collar. So let's just say I'm a little hesitant to leave this family heirloom with her, but my options are limited, so I take the leap. Over the next few weeks, the woman comes to my place of work to do the fittings, for obvious reasons. And if you did not know, antique lace and silk are the perfect materials to pull over a sweaty body in the tropics. In the non-air-conditioned bathroom, I shimmy on the dress while sweating profusely into its delicate antique fibers. The experience was somewhat of a rebirthing process, except my life coach was a pushy and rough Dominican grandma. So let's just say it was not healing. The wedding is about two or three weeks away, and on the day, 
Zach sees me and his eyes are full of love and a bit of curiosity. He doesn't have to ask, I tell him. It's her great-grandmother Sadie's dress. I save the story of how it came to be for another time. And for now, we're in awe of each other and this moment. When I think back to when we registered as domestic partners, I realize it was so simple. It wasn't overplanned or overthought or perfectly presented. All the chaos and drama and stuff we went through to make our union official, to present it to our family and friends, I realize in that moment it's for naught. We're just who we are. At the wedding, our family and friends sit semicircle and they turn expectantly to welcome us into the fold. And I grab Zach's hand and we walk out together. I wear flowers in my hair and a perfume of sweat and earth. We are just who we are. Inspirational words for anyone who feels overwhelmed by the demands put on couples when they agree to marry. A wise woman once told me, you're just as married if there's two people at your wedding as if there's 300. Do you have a story of your own wedding? Or maybe somebody else's? If you're in Hong Kong, come down to one of our free workshops and tell us all about it. Our workshop hosts will help you to tell the story in the best way you can. Find out how at hongkongstories.com. Our second story today is from The Vault, told live at the Fringe Club in 2016. Here is Sebastian. So, how to be a man? I come from a very macho family, okay, where a man is afraid of nothing. When I was a kid, my parents bring me to Florida for our holidays. While I was swimming with everybody with some flotation device, I decided it was the perfect moment for me to become a man. So I get out of the swimming pool, I remove my, my flotation device, I walk straight to the other side of the swimming pool where the water is the deepest, and I jump. And I drown. <laughs> I had like bubbles all above my head, water everywhere. I hear my mom screaming. I touch the bottom. Someone's jumping the water, pull me out, and save my life. But I didn't stop. This is, didn't stop me to try to prove that I can be a man. So after that, I continue to do all those stupid things. Every time that someone jumped that high, I have to jump that high. And I continue to do those stupid things until it reached some um, quite sick level, I would say. One day recently, uh, one of my friends called me and said, hey, Sebastians, we're going to skydiving. You want to come with us? Skydiving? Yes, of course I want to come with us. One week of skydiving? Why not? To get a license? Yes, 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 yes. We're going skydiving together, all right. So uh, we arrive at the place where we do skydiving. Then they start to explain, the first day they start to explain us that there's no tandem. We, I, I start to jump with two instructors next to me. 
They explain us all the uh, safety uh, device and security procedures. I will have a helmet, a little radio here where they can talk to me from the ground, but I cannot talk to them, and a parachute. And then the next thing was, they call my name. My legs start to shake like this. My heart sink. It was my turn. I pulled my parachute, put my, my helmet and my altimeters, I go to the plane with lots of other skydivers. We all board the plane together. And the plane take off and go higher and higher and higher. At 1,500 meters, next time you are on a Boeing, okay, sit very comfortably in your chair. Look down when you reach 1,500 meters. This is super high. <laughs> and this is, this is not where I jump. This is where I'm supposed to open my parachute. The plane continues to go higher <laughs> and higher and higher until we reach 4,000 meters. 4,000 meters, they open the door. <sighs> Everybody starts to jump. Very quickly, they disappear. There was me, my two instructors, and the pilot left in the plane. Later, I saw, because they were filming us, I saw something on the plane that I'm not proud of. It looks like a smash squirrel on the plane, on the corner of the plane. It was me. I was crawling <laughs> to reach the edge of the plane. And then they told, they told me, don't look down. Of course I looked down. <laughs> there was cloud. I was above the cloud. Houses were tiny like this. I was wondering, what am I doing here? Why, why I'm doing this? I can be with my friends sitting on the terrace drinking beers for much cheaper because the worst thing is I'm paying to be here. <laughs> and then I look at the two instructors next to me. I say, make the sign with the head. Okay, let's go jump. I jump. <laughs> now, to be honest, okay, the free fall is pretty cool. Nothing happened. It's quite easy. Everything is okay until we reach the 1,500 meters where I open my parachute. The two instructors with me, they have something else to do, other things to do, more important. They disappear very quickly to the ground, <laughs> leaving me alone at 1,500 meters, suspended in the middle of the sky to a towel. <laughs> the only sounds I can hear is like the wind floating in the towel above me, which is not reassuring at all. I didn't want to be in the plane, but I don't want to be here neither. <laughs> and then the little radio started to talk to me. I said, Sebastian, if everything is okay, turn right. Now, everything that they told us uh, the day before at the ground looks pretty easy from the ground, all the movement. To turn right, I have two handles here attached by Velcro. I just have to grab them and turn. But when you're at 1,500 meters above the ground, every movement is very scary. I reached the, the the handles very slowly, remove the Velcro, and turn. I think I made like a one kilometer radius circle. <laughs> I totally disappeared from, from the sky. <laughs> Sebastian, Sebastian, come back. <laughs> slowly, maybe half an hour later, I turn back, and I, I land on the ground, quite pretty okay. The good news is, I was alive. <laughs> The bad news is, to get the license, I still have to do it five more times. 
And even worse, I have to watch myself on the videos <laughs> with everybody else. That night, we were all drinking beers with, with uh, everybody's. And the instructor, one of the instructors came to us and looked at my friend and said, you, you're talented. You, you learn fast. It would be fun to dive with you. You, you, you I think you, you, you have fun up, upstairs. It would be fun to dive with you too. And then he turns to me. He said, you, what are you doing here? <laughs> I was an imposter and I was caught. And so at that time I decided... It's over. I'm finished. I try and don't try again to prove that I can be a man by afraid because I'm afraid of these things, okay? So it was perfect because a few weeks later, I was moving to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong means a new life, a new start. New friends, new colleagues, everything is new. Nobody knows me here until I meet that girl, my new girlfriend. One day she called me, hey, Sebastian's. Me and my friend were going zip lines. You want to come with us? I said, a zip line? Come on, I do skydiving. <laughs> a zip line? A zip line is for kids. From one tree to another tree, you just zip through the line. Yeah, of course I'm doing it. It would be fun. No problem. Hang. So we took, a, it was on the highlands. We took the ferry, arrived there. And then they explained to us that we have a little hike of 15 minutes to reach the cliff. And the cliff is 30 meters. So uh, I, we hike, we arrive there. And when we arrive at the cliff, 30 meters, I felt like I was on top of IFC. <laughs> it's super high. <laughs> there was like two cliffs facing each other. The waves were breaking to the rocks below me. I can, I can feel myself, I can see myself breaking too on those rocks. And then there was some bunch of hippies installing the, the zipline from, because it was not a permanent zipline. They were installing it in front of me. Some kind of hippies, like, with cables. Well, I know Hong Kong is not China, okay? But where the material is coming from? Is it safe to do this? People start to, people start to line up, so I join them. My girlfriend's in front of me, a few people's behind me. And then my girlfriend jumped. She did. And then she's on the other side with the camera looking at me. Honey, jump. It's fun. Take a photo. <laughs> so I'm there in front of that rock. I can see the waves breaking on the rocks again. I felt like I was on a James Bond movie. But I don't want to be James Bond. <laughs> so I start to think a little bit, okay? I thought... What the most courageous things to do right now? Is it jumping or to admit that I'm a chicken? <laughs> if I don't jump, I will face humiliation in front of my girlfriends and her friends. Worse, tonight when we're going to have a drinks with all the friends in the bar, they will drink beers, which they deserve. <laughs> and me, I will drink what? A virgin mocktail? <laughs> On the other hand, if I jump, I can die. <laughs> so I thought about this for like 10 minutes. People behind me were starting to complain a little bit. I said, okay, I'm a man. It's time for me to face, to overcome my fears. And today, it's not dying what is worse. 
is to admit that I'm a chicken. So only because I'm a man. Don't take me wrong, okay? Only because I'm a man, it was time for me to step down. Thank you. Thanks for listening to these stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. Our hero this week is Gina, who curated and directed December's live show. Gina, your work is appreciated. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell. <laughs>